Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right, we're back. Episode 31 of Hashing It Out. As always, I'm here with Colin Couchet. Say hello, Colin. Hello, Colin. Nice. You're getting better at, at reproducing what I say. I'm going to start yeah. making it more difficult from here on out, so you have to really get into it. You have to do funny voices, man. Do you do any? I do a lot of funny voices, but I need to be a little drunk to do them, and the time is not good to be drunk today. So. Yeah, we've recorded drunk ones before, but... <laughs> It's been at like seven o'clock at least. Yeah. So. so today's episode, we're here with uh, Michael and Luis from the Pocket Network. Say what's up, guys. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having us on. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yeah, of course. And I'm curious to see, uh, I have a lot of questions about how, how Pocket Network works, but to get started, why don't we get an introduction as to who you are, how you got in the space, and what the Pocket Network is from like a 10,000 feet overview. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm Michael, and uh, I got into Bitcoin uh, in 2013, um, up to that first uh, run-up, and uh, got super interested into it, uh, into it then, and uh, I'm also an iOS developer, so uh, I've been an iOS developer for about four years professionally, and uh, when uh, we started working on Pocket about three years ago, um, or two and a half years ago, uh, I really got into uh, smart contract development on Ethereum. And uh, because me and Luis, we had met at a previous startup. And uh, been really deep into uh, Ethereum since then. And uh, now we're building building our own protocol. Great. Luis, you want to do the same thing? Sure. Um, So yeah, as Michael pointed out, uh, I've been doing software development for a bit longer. uh, But I didn't get that much into crypto until like uh, we at the, around the same time we started developing the project. I, I was aware of the technology and the implications, but I never like dove deep until those first conversations. So from that point on, like it's been a whole a whole run uh, into into building uh, and speaking out this this whole project. So that's that's interesting. Like, there's a lot of developers who are getting into the space. What was your background uh, before you did this, and what was your barrier to entry? Yeah. So basically, I was a more of a product-oriented developer. Uh, I focused on end-to-end, from business idea to actual ex- execution kind of projects. Uh, so that led me to do a lot of startup work, um, and then. I got aware of the technology, not because of the whole price thing and people getting rich, but rather about the profound implications that it will have on on security and things like user authentication, decentralized user authentication and all that. So that really piqued my interest from a systems and architecture point of view. But it it didn't, I didn't get to the point because 
the tooling and getting into it, it was so more, so cumbersome. So by the time um, I, we started talking about Pocket and the initial idea, um, I started to see a, an improvement. Ethereum was picking up. It was easier to get into, for example, smart contract development and all that. And all, the, all those things uh, allow you to have a bigger design space and, and headspace into what the technology is about. So I, I see Pocket as almost providing um, services at layer zero. Can you give like an introduction to like what the point of Pocket is and like what what, what problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, um, I would say that Pocket is like a decentralized Infura, really. Um, so what it does is incentivize people to run a full node, put a thin API layer on top, and what the protocol does is route API requests from a client to the right node for the right job. And there's a randomly selected committee of validator nodes that validate those API requests. And once those API requests get validated, uh, the people serving them get paid or in, in pocket. So the protocol, it's an inflationary protocol and it uh, mints tokens to those providing the work. Um, another way we like to explain it is like, uh, almost like uh, AWS, how AWS, um, you know, if, you're, if you have an app like Slack, for example, and uh, every app needs storage and compute, for example, right? And AWS acts as a layer in between the actual application and those core functions that, uh, uh, that are needed to build those applications. If I'm a blockchain developer and I wanna build something using Bitcoin or I wanna build something with anonymity using Zcash or Monero, or I need file storage, uh, well, I need to be able to talk to that blockchain. So with Pocket, Pocket is a infrastructure layer that sits in between the developer and the actual blockchain they want to communicate to. And uh, in the end, what it does is incentivize people to run those full nodes and service those API requests. Now, does this only work for Ethereum? No, Pocket is blockchain agnostic. So we've built Pocket uh, really modular, and uh, we've got, uh, basically, it's a plugin system that we've built. And uh, these plugins, uh, correct me if I'm only released, but they're around uh, 150 lines of code. Uh, and right now, as long as you have a JavaScript library that we can work with, uh, it's very easy for us to spin up these plugins. So the idea is, I mean, we, we think that uh, we're going to live in a world with many dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of blockchains uh, you know, governing our lives. And uh, for the many blockchains that are coming out in Testnet today and the many that haven't been invented, well, we think it'll be much, much easier for them to build out a plugin really simply through the Pocket Network uh, that just basically uh, abides to our interface. And all of a sudden you've got a network of hundreds of thousands of nodes willing to spin up your infrastructure as long as there's developer demand. So we're really trying to make it really, really easy for uh, new blockchains coming out and blockchains developers to actually build those applications. So you're trying to provide the service for people to say, all right, I want to have, like say I'm, I'm creating a DAP, I want to have this type of functionality. Okay, that requires this blockchain. I'll then call that appropriate API to the pocket network to get that information securely, so on and so forth. That, exactly. Okay. So exactly. this is somewhat of a, like, uh, I'm seeing uh, of a recurring narrative right now, at least in the, like the lower technical space, is this network layer and how it's actually done. And it's, it's quite difficult. You're seeing a lot of the conversations in Ethereum around um, moving from dev P2P to lib P2P, like how you're actually making peer connections and, and maintaining those connections, especially when... Um, the type of node they're using may be may have a lot of churn, which means that like it comes on the network, off the network. So like you're not really sure 
on the availability of all the nodes that you have? Like, how, how are you addressing this? Like, what are you, what, what are you building on? Are you, did you create your own? Does that even matter for what you do? So currently, <clears throat> sorry about that. Currently, um, our, um, our current architecture design doesn't really care too much about that. We established a protocol for liveness. So there will be a set of nodes providing liveness checks uh, between their peers where their peers could get penalized economically speaking um, if, if they don't, uh, if they fail this liveness test. So in our particular case, we're also trying to achieve networking modularity in the sense that uh, we want people to connect to nodes in whatever network protocol they want to reach them. Right now we're focusing a lot on HTTP and WebSockets because those are the most popular, but we want to allow uh, to, uh, we want to allow P, uh, nodes to connect between themselves using whatever uh, kind of networking layer they, they choose. To. So could we get a little more into the liveness uh, tests that you're talking about? What does that mean uh, to test for liveness? So we have two basic requirements, right? If you're up and the speed at, at which you respond. So we haven't put the actual numbers there yet, but we're, we have the framework for it where it's we're gonna pro, uh, do a sequence of steps uh, every X amount of time. Uh, and if you fail those steps to respond, first respond and, and second respond within a certain time frame, then uh, you're gonna be under the subject of um, you failed this liveness check. And uh, <clears throat> what the protocol establishes is we want people to, we want nodes to to always maintain reliability and uh, availability of their service at all times. But that's not always the case with um, with um, with peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks. Nodes can come in, uh, join, and leave at whatever time they want. So what we want to do is establish a protocol to let them join and leave whenever they want, but at the same time, whenever they're present, they need to be alive uh, during that period. Okay, so let me, let me try and get this uh, like a broad or like a standard user story here. Someone using the pocket network. I have uh, node infrastructure, and I run various nodes um, for whatever services that I do already. Um, and I I use the standard node infrastructure that those networks provide, and then I interface that with uh, the pocket network layer that sits on top of it. And I say I am running these nodes. I would like to like broadcast these services into the pocket networks that I'm going to serve this information to the pocket network. And then uh, I basically get checked by the pocket network to make sure that those nodes are running and I can serve that information appropriately. And uh, I also stake pocket, which we'll get into a little bit, which then kind of uh, guarantees or, and also penalizes based on those liveness checks you just said. And then I get paid for serving information to DAP. So, instead of, so on the DAP layer, all they would have to do ostensibly is say, I want to connect to these blockchains, pocket network, make that happen for me. Correct. So, so uh, I actually want to bring up a conversation we had with uh, Alex uh, Van Nessad we had a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and, and we're talking a lot about making it as easy as possible for developers to access blockchains with UX and UI. Um, I know Alex Space uh, is focusing on a bunch of the UI, UX for the user, but I would say that Pocket is actually focusing on the UX for developers. 
So we've got a suite of SDKs, for example, that we've built that make it really easy for developers to communicate to those pocket nodes. And uh, basically we've abstracted uh, all blockchain uh, queries uh, and transactions to these two things, queries and transactions, right? So the plugins that we build or that anyone else builds uh, basically conform to, those, to that abstraction and allows it to communicate easily to the pocket node that the person is running, that someone, someone else is running. Okay. And have you, have you learned, changed, know about uh, some of the competitors that are doing something similar? Like I, I, I see DAP node uh, as being somewhat similar to this type of service. Yeah, DAP node, uh, you've got quick node, you've got, uh, um, there's a couple other ones I'm missing. There's um, a lot of people that are trying to decentralize in Fiora right now, because that's clearly a problem within the Ethereum ecosystem. But by, I guess what you're doing is trying to make it more broad than that. So you're not only serving Ethereum information, you're serving um, arbitrary information. And what's interesting about Ethereum, like if you think about Justin Fiora and the sheer amount of volume of transaction requests that they get, generalizing that to other networks seems like a lot of work, or at least like a lot of uh, bandwidth for, for a network to uphold. Uh, how, like, that's, that's a lot of different things in, in, in one question, but what do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, sort of the first part, um, you're basically, Pocket is here to basically incentivize someone to run a full node, right? So um, Luis, if you want to talk to the bandwidth a little bit, but um, we think that this is kind of like a core layer for blockchains that are going to, not everyone has an Infura, yeah. right? In fact, Ethereum is the only protocol that has an Infura. And, and we, you know, we, we consider Pocket as more of a application specific blockchain meant specifically for people who are running full nodes with these thin APIs on top. Yeah. And if, my, if I might address the bandwidth issue, um, not all the transaction data goes through the Pocket blockchain because that will induce a, a, a bottleneck by design. What, what is actually happening is that the small coordination layer on which pocket node fulfills your request is what we're trying to achieve in our uh, coordination, in the, in the protocol coordination layer. So after that, the connection happens seamlessly between the client and the node, what we call a service node, the actual node that is fulfilling the API request. At a later stage, after that API request is fulfilled, um, the node will report to a set of randomly chosen validators uh, the work that it's done. So after that work is approved, it's, uh, they're going to uh, get the reward. Okay. That so a, lot of work, a lot of the work happens off-chain. And, um, you know, originally Pocket was actually a set of smart contracts on Ethereum. But if you look at... Uh, for example, in Fira scale, they're doing over 10 billion API requests a day now. Um, even batching that up and submitting that to a smart contract gets really expensive really fast. So uh, part of our solution actually was to just build out a completely separate blockchain that incredibly decreases the, the cost of running this. So how, when you say you're communicating with other blockchains, um... How, how do you commit to them if you're like, what are the, what do the commits look like? Like what, if, if you're not doing what in, in Fira does and batching things up and sending it and making it still pretty expensive, what are you doing instead to resolve these requests? Okay. So that's a very interesting question. 
So as Michael pointed out, we have both an off-chain component and an on-chain component. So how do we maintain security across all those layers? So basically we have this sort of shard that is called a session. And a session is basically the connection between a client application, a, a set of service nodes and a set of validator nodes. So during a small time frame, um, and we're, we're trying to um, reduce that time frame as much as we can to avoid collusion. Um, during the, a small time frame, the client is going to use as that set of service nodes to uh, for them to fulfill the actual API request, and that happens off chain. The client signs every request saying, hey, I want this data and I'm signing that, uh, that I am who I'm saying I am uh, but with, this, with this private key. And, and then on the service node side, they sign the response to that request. So now you have a set of signatures that prove that uh, the client actually submitted that request and the service node actually fulfilled it. After, uh, after the request is actually served at a later stage, uh, the service node takes the request he's done and all the signatures and sends it up to the validators. And the validators confirm first the identity of both by doing a zero knowledge proof, which is something very standard by, by now, um, using the signature and knowing, hey, um, this is uh, the client that, uh, this is who, requested and this is who responded and based on that in uh, on that set of data we have two basically two main interactions we have queries which we represent by uh, allowing a set of metadata of at which uh, block and on which state did the node read the data from so that way the validators can go into their own copies of the blockchain and check that same state directory if you may and check if the data correlates. For transactions, it's way more, way simpler, and you only need the transaction hash. And you use the transaction hash, you check the transaction information uh, both ways, and then you just need to hit approve or deny. Uh, the validators get into consensus of chain by signing, uh, uh, doing a, a transaction signature chain, and then uh, that becomes a batch of transactions that goes into the actual pocket blockchain. So that way we don't have to record into our own blockchain every single transaction because that will be too expensive to do anyways. So what we do is we defer to these validators to actually batch these transactions off chain uh, and then submit them to the blockchain. Of course, everyone involved is a state. So if someone misbehaves or, or tries to collude, they get significant, significantly slashed. And that's where the crypto economic model uh, helps keeps the, uh, keep the incentives aligned. So help me out here because I see I, I, I might have missed something here. So I, that explains how you're kind of batching it to your um, layer one solution, the, um, the pocket uh, blockchain. But let's just say I'm trying to uh, write a uh, decentralized application on top of Bitcoin. Um, and I have one Bitcoin in my wallet and I'm trying to send, I don't know, half of it to somebody else. And in the meantime, while you're doing your work, I actually send, you know, uh, 70, you know, 0.75 Bitcoin to somebody else. And now I don't have the funds to support that transaction. Like, how are you resolving these sort of like 
the, the cross communication between the, the resolution layer on the actual blockchain and your layer one solution. That's what I'm not sure I'm quite grasping yet. So the layer one solution doesn't actually care about the other blockchains, to be honest. The layer one solution only cares that the validators uh, got into consensus and that's proven by all the validator signatures and the, and the transaction batch data. Um, the layer one do, uh, solution doesn't know what is Bitcoin, what is Ethereum, what is what. They only care about which client requested which data and which service nodes what, uh, provided it and which validators actually did the validation. The ones who validate all that are the service nodes at, at the stage of when you submit the transaction and the uh, uh, validators when they actually validate the work that was done. So uh, let, let me, let me um, rephrase that in three steps. The client needs to submit the right request. And, and remember, every blockchain has protections for things like this, like replay attacks and all that. If I try to submit a second transaction, it's going to have a, a, a different node. So me as a client, I have no incentive to, to go ahead and do that, right? So uh, in, in that particular case, it won't matter. Um, in the second step, the service node is actually economically incentivized to check the transaction formatting and, and data before uh, submitting it to the, to, the, to the actual blockchain because if they fail, they need to report that they failed to submit that transaction and get, they get less money. So they're, they're economically incentivized to, to, to check for, for, for transaction format. And then the validators are the last layer of defense and they'll check that both the clients submitted the appropriate request and that the service node um, respond in the correct manner. Okay, so I see this as um, a service provider coordinator and then a, a kind of a, a, a post methodology for incentivizing that coordination once it's been done. Is that a exactly. good way to sum up what's going on here? So like I said, I'm trying to picture this, um, a good, I'd say a good portion of our audience is Ethereum people. Uh, if you think about how MetaMask automatically connects to Infura basically on a default thing, but you have the option to change your provider. What this potentially could do is basically change that entire thing to just you know go to the pocket network and the pocket network sorts out who you get connected to. Exactly. And then that's more generalized because it's more than Ethereum. It could be any other network, IPFS, uh, Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Correct, because uh, there's a couple of things I want to add. Um, a pocket node could be running the top 20 cryptos in the world, right? Let's say by, 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 by throughput. And um, so one person is running those top 20 nodes, but then you've got an entire network of people running those top 20 nodes. And on the other side of that, for a developer, um, whereas, granted, Infure is free, uh, but other services like BlockCypher, BlockDemon, things like that aren't free, um, instead of a developer paying a fee to the network like you would normally, um, you actually would buy our token and stake it uh, into the network. So as a developer, it'd be like a one-time transaction and you would stake your, our tokens into the network. And uh, what the network does is throttle your throughput. So the amount that you can access the network via API requests based on how much you've staked. And that's a way to do like spam protection, I imagine. Or like yes, that's correct. In, in one layer, because the first layer, remember, it's always the what we call the relay layer, the, the layer where the actual service goes through. There's also, you know, 
it's an actual blockchain that is providing the finality guarantees and it will work pretty much like any other blockchain. It will have its own JSON-RPC interface. It will have, it, uh, the, you can send raw transactions, but we won't be hosting, for example, a smart contract platform on Air or any other general blockchain things. We will only need what is extremely necessary to actually provide the, this coordination, this service coordination that you just described. Can you, can we dig a little deeper into what that, what the pocket blockchain is and how it works? Some of the, some of the details behind it? Of course. So <clears throat> the pocket blockchain is the actual, the lowest layer on the whole pocket network um, system. So what the block, pocket blockchain does is provide finality guarantees by having a set, uh, it's going to be a proof of stake uh, chain that is going to have its own set of validators and um, you're going to be able to propagate transactions to it either through a relay, through a, through a pocket node, or you can just run your own and submit transactions to it. Um, and, and what that will do is it will host, it will of course keep the, the decentralized ledger of everyone's uh, balances. It will host the ledgers of the stakes of everyone. It will host a little bit of metadata with every stake just to know enough about each node staking or each developer staking um, so that the coordination can actually happen. From that, from that information, the, the other layers of the pocket system, which are the session layer and, um, and the, client, the client, the service, and the session layers will use that data as the source of truth. So we're using the blockchain as you will use any database in, in a normal system. If you think a normal web stack, you have a front end, you have a middleware, you have a, a database. So what we're doing is we're, we're taking that, we're taking that and converting it to a version that works for us by saying, okay, we have a client layer, which is basically the interface that end users are going to use. You have a, a service layer, which is the one executing the actual transactions to the different blockchains. You have a session layer that the validators will use to actually validate all that work. And then you have the blockchain layer, which provides the finality of, of all the work that happened off chain. And I would, I would, I would assume um, the people who are running the nodes and also the pocket network nodes, like just by like interfacing with the pocket network, you basically run a pocket network node as well. And by running a node, are you automatically a validator? How does that work? So it's, it's very opt-in. Uh, our, our client pocket core is going to allow you to do all at once uh, in a single instance. Uh, just like in Geth, for example, you can disable the JSON RPC, you can disable different modules just to suit your needs. Um, the pocket core client is going to allow you to do all that. So what we envision is more of a service of, of how an, an architectural piece in an infrastructure machine will work, where you will want some instances of the blockchain running in a set of subnetworks you will want your load balanced uh, relayers, uh, and you will want uh, all your security measures in place to, to protect your nodes from outside attacks and, what, and whatnot. So in, 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 in summary, uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that you can pick and choose uh, which actor you want to be in the network. You can be a blockchain validator and just participate in the proof of stake consensus that is keeping the finality guarantees of the blockchain 
uh, afloat. Or you can participate in the relays and mint BOKT tokens whenever you do work for the network. Or you can participate as a validator after passing a set of requirements and uh, validate transactions for other nodes. I'm seeing like, something, something I'm curious about now. Uh, running a bunch of nodes across various networks is uh, computationally expensive as well as bandwidth expensive. Um, is, there, is there a way to run, say like I could be like, run my pocket node on one machine and point to a bunch of different machines because the likelihood of running all of the stuff on one machine is, is, is not reasonable. Yeah, yes, that's exactly how it works. Our plugin system is actually an interface that allows you to connect, for example, to a load balancer where you're running 20 guest instances in 20 different machines, and it actually load balances. Or, or you can actually do very cool stuff where you can say, okay, all the read requests go to this load balancer and all the write requests go to this other load balancer because we're thinking about the infrastructure provider when we're designing all this. We want people to have all the options that they can uh, to miss and match um, architectural components to the best of, 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 to the most flexibility that we can allow in terms of security um, to actually go ahead and configure your nodes however you see fit. People, some people are going to probably find out that having taller machines, which means bigger, more capable machines, are, it's probably going to be a, a bad approach versus having a, a, a 40 different nodes running different services and, and using a load balancer to coordinate it all. So yeah, we're, we're trying to keep it as flexible as possible. So it seems like this is the tooling. Um, try, you're trying to make tooling for people to become their own generalized Infura for other people. And then uh, that's, that's a more of like the, the like, infrastructure side of using your software or using your service or the platform. The other side would be to just make it easy for dot developers to say, I need information from this network. Go get it for me pocket. That, that, is that, that kind of a reasonable, like the two sides of what's going on in, in, yeah. this, in this platform? Exactly. You can think of it like a two-sided marketplace, just like that. Uh, it's a developer-driven platform. So, you know, if developers are using pocket, there will be a market of nodes willing to spin up uh, to, to service those developers. And like you, you mentioned that the token is minted, um, it's an inflationary market. Can, can we talk about the kind of economics around this, this token, how it works, what its like, supply is, how things get moved? Like I'm trying to see like um, there needs to be a value. Like I need, I need to make money as a, as a infrastructure provider serving requests to a bunch of people. If there's like, if, if, if the value associated with, or the cost associated with running this infrastructure and serving information is much, much, much larger than the value I'm getting on the pocket network. Then it doesn't. Why would I keep using it? And like, how do how do how does the economics play into there? Yeah, great question. Um, and that's uh, so we're we're we are. So I, I think one of the most unique things about Pocket is our dynamic model, um, because it, there's a bunch of knobs that can be turned, and and um, part of launching this is is. You know, testing this and, and seeing what, uh, how those knobs affect the, the the liquidity of the token and the price of the token, things like that. But but in the end, there's three main economic uh, mechanisms that are in pocket. Uh, there's staking, there's minting, and there's burning. Um, the the interesting thing about pocket is is we don't have a static mint like Ethereum does or Bitcoin does or most blockchains do. Um, our mint is actually based on per API request. So as Pocket uh, gets more popular, 
uh, more pocket will be inflated or more pocket will be created out of thin air, right? That being said, if pocket's getting more popular, more people have to stake our token to use the network. So there's kind of a balancing act there um, at equilibrium um, you know, over the course of time. Uh, another thing that's interesting is that normal transactions on pocket, uh, the fees are completely burned. So what we think it in uh, at maturity of the, of the protocol, which we, we don't know when it's gonna be, but we think that the, uh, the profit that a node is gonna make in the end is gonna be the delta between how much pocket was burned and uh, how much extra pocket was staked during a given amount of time. Um, there are three main burning mechanisms in the protocol. Um, one is the fees. Uh, so every time I do a normal pocket transaction, um, that gets burned. Uh, obviously, if you're a bad actor, uh, your tokens get burned. And uh, the third part is uh, we have a DAO uh, directly inspired from Dash, where to make a proposal, you have to pocket or you have to burn some pocket to actually submit your proposal. So. Uh, between those mechanisms and the growth of staking, um, we believe uh, that will actually, at maturity, keep uh, the, the the total supply, let's say, of the tokens uh, relatively e even or maybe even hopefully deflationary. Done any modeling on that? Like I'm trying to, I'm trying to like picture that and, and like what it looks like <laughs> in the end and possible ways of like manipulating this type of thing uh, yeah. and what the cost would be for staking node infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, so. If it gets too too costly to actually stake and and participate, then you have to you have no other way to get tokens into the system to to kind of correct. So so ours uh, it's uh, we we've taken a bit of learning from life here. So it's a dynamic staking model. So whereas like with Dash, they've capped out at like twenty five hundred uh, master nodes or something like that because of the price of Dash. You know, it's mm -hmm. going slowly. Uh, uh, ours is a, a dynamic stake. So that number as a developer, for example, if I have to stake. Two dollars worth of pocket, and then the price goes up, uh, you know, triples the next day. Well, I don't want to have to stake six dollars worth of pocket for the same amount of work, right? So, um, there's a dynamic staking mechanism there that actually is based on how much is po a pocket is staked and how much a pocket is circulating. Um, so we're actually so this whole economics thing we've uh, this is what we're really really deeply working on right now. Um, Tracy, uh, she's she's working with us. Uh, she's done. A ton of modeling, and uh, we're we're really working through uh, uh, the best way uh, to go about this and the best way to execute on this plan because um, uh, it is a different model because because the the way it's going to grow it's going to actually grow based on the usage of the network, right? So um, part of that is making it expensive for for me to self deal, for example, uh, things like that. So so if I am a client and I have a node, well, if I'm just Serving myself API requests while I'm needlessly inflating the network, and that's that's a problem. So, so we've thought through a lot of these problems, and uh, you know, it's hard to to test it until it's live. So, so we can't wait to actually test our our models and our theories when the protocol is actually live, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least to test that. Yeah, I got yeah. It. go ahead, Luis. No, I was gonna say that we were we, we're gonna test in testnet. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, when we fly. Uh, but yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I, Michael. My, uh, it, that's a very like important point to take for the record. Yeah, that's that's actually yeah. I understand. I understand the correction there, and I and I see this. Um, so in the process of creating this, so your your platform grows um, and gains its value based on the service requests. It's like basically the traffic it gets from various networks. So you actually see your success is not. 
um, relegated to a specific network. In fact, it gives a lot of usage statistics across all of blockchain, depending on how much your your system is being used on what decentralized networks node infrastructure is actually in most demand uh, across across the board, assuming that people are you know all using Pocket, if I have to say. Um, do you, have you considered what type of metadata you leak um, for the users? So I'm trying to think of like looking at this from a forensic, forensic analysis perspective of the type of data that flows across your network and what I could gain from that, as well as uh, just data analytics in general, uh, how I could extract usable, insightful information from the data flowing across the network and the usage statistics. Have y'all thought about that at all? Sure, <laughs> we, we've thought it about like um, quite considerably. Um, and in every step of the design, we are we are always we are always asking ourselves how uh, we we need to use the least amount of data to get the most amount of reward out of that data. And um, basically, from a developer point of view, uh, we're creating this whole authentication system based around policies so to allow developers to pick and choose which model be, um, benefits their app the most in terms of user authentication. Because we, we are striving to a model where if I want to create a app that has no backend, I'm a developer and I don't want to host any infrastructure. I just want my app, my users to connect to the website or download the app. Um, they, they need to be able to go ahead and do that. Um, that's from the developer point of view. So from a developer standpoint, they will have, they will create developer IDs, which is a, a, a subset of metadata and every user install, we're calling it a user install, but if you go to the web, it's going to be every user that, that is using the app, every instance of the app, um, will actually require to have an account, a, po a pocket account uh, in the background without the user doesn't have to know about it and um, they use that account to sign the, the transaction so in that particular sense we're not doing any KYC we're not doing any you know um, we don't need to reveal any data and from the node standpoint the only piece of information that we can't get away from revealing is where is the node endpoint actually is like what's that domain or what's that IP address um, that you need to connect to, because in the end, it's not actually a decentralized DNS where, where you provide a domain name and you don't even know what the IP address behind that is. You actually need to know where to connect to, and that's part of the whole coordination layer uh, system. So that's the only piece of information that the nodes leak, if you may, where they, whenever they stake, they need to actually specify the endpoint to which clients will connect to, to service, um, to get service. So I, I hope that answers your, your question. In terms of the blockchain nodes, um, it's, if you think about guests, for example, now if, we, if most of the audience is uh, Ethereum friendly, um, in guests you have boot nodes because uh, it uses Cademblia, the Cademblia um, al algorithm for peer-to-peer -peer connectivity. And you need boot nodes that actually help you build a routing table. Those boot nodes expose the IP address or, or domain that you use to connect to. And then in your peer list, you have all the IP addresses um, that, the, that the node that you're connected with 
have so you can actually send and receive data. Um, so we believe that with this minimal amount of information, and of course, we will have guidelines, we will have better practices for our node operators to actually go ahead and uh, keep their nodes safe, even if they're exposing a public facing interface. But that's a standard web security, like you need yeah. to mitigate video S, you need to mitigate uh, all sorts of scanning into your network and, and all those sorts of things. So that's pretty standard. So just to let you know, I sidebarred Corey for a little bit. I'll be frank, I wasn't getting it um, at first. I, I heard your explanations, and, and one of the reasons why I wasn't quite grasping it is because I kept hearing Infura. And uh, it, it doesn't sound like that's a strong enough analogy to what you're doing. Um, because Infura basically takes... I'm sorry if I'm jumping in and you just, you know, I'm derailing this, but I have been trying to figure this out genuinely. I've been looking over your white paper. I've been trying to dig deep in this. Um, and I'm like, Corey, like, I don't get it. If it's like an Infura, like, if your batches things and uses Ethereum as the main truth mechanism for the entire decentralized application that I'm using. So if these guys are trying to do something, I kept hearing decentralized Infura, then basically I would expect at some point I would send a transaction that would get resolved on Ethereum. Now, Corey, yeah, you're shaking your head. Uh, Corey's, Corey's corrected me on this. And I need, so I, I think this is probably one of the main points of, of uh, confusion uh, I, I personally had. And I, I cannot see myself being the only person is when you bring up Infura, you see one model of doing things, which is basically this centralized service which you dump your stuff into and it will put it in the blockchain for you in a batch process. And that's not what this is at all. Like, it's a res it's a it's a it's its own resolution layer. You have your own blockchain, which is something that also threw me, but I got and I understood and I figured why that would be useful when it comes to cross blockchain communication. But you're not acting as you're actually the app layer. Like you're you're the transaction layer. You are you are the resolution layer. You are your own resolution layer, meaning that everything resolves to your token. And then you can exchange that token for value on the other networks. Is that correct? Did I finally get it? I no, I didn't. So. I don't think so. When you say, <laughs> I'm when still you say, not going to get it. Help me out here. When you say everything resolves to our token, um, like 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 our, our token, you could think of is the value of all the validated API requests that all the hundreds or thousands of mini Infuras are servicing in our pocket network, right? So so everyone's doing a bunch of work servicing a bunch of DApps as kind of like a middleware layer, if you will. Uh, but it's its own protocol and sits next to Ethereum, sits next to Bitcoin, everything like that. All, all these API requests and doing all this work. And the result of that uh, is the minting of our token. So you could say that, yes, the token's value or the token's work to have been minted uh, is the result of the work done in the network directly in that sense. Hopefully, does that clear anything for that's, you? But maybe this well, might be easy to elucidate this. Like, I'm having is hold on let me let me, let me get this thought up. The fundamental problem I'm having is I I want to use Ethereum, right? How, as a DApp developer, am I using your network to facilitate that? Okay. Okay, but, I want to use Litecoin. You got, same you got the Okay, that's the question. Yeah. I think it would be easy to elucidate how this works by like going through the life cycle of the request answer process as well as the payout from the from that service. Sure. 
Um, if I may illustrate the the um, the infura uh, life cycle and then ours, maybe it will create the best analogy. Because here's the thing: if I'm a DApp developer and I want to connect to Ethereum, I need to run my own guest or parity nodes, right? Um, uh, we're clear up up until that point. Um, so basically, most DApp developers don't want to deal with that because guests could, can be quite resource consuming. It can be, uh, you know, unstable at times, like where it's like uh, my get instance stops uh, syncing and all that. And I don't want to deal with that. I just want people to send cats to each other over, over the network, right? So what happens? I submit a request from my DApp into a guest node that it's alive and that it's um, synced up and I'm able to send my transaction to that node and that node ma magically uh, will propagate that transaction all the way into the blockchain and it's gonna be confirmed. I'm gonna go into Etherscan and I'm gonna be able to see by my transaction hash that my transaction is confirmed. Uh, until that point, that's the first life cycle. So where Infura goes in is hosting that guest node. I don't want to deal with that. Like I'm a I'm a developer. I'm a iOS. Oh, developer. I got it. You see, so I'm I only host my app in my servers. Yeah, that and that brings up the AWS analogy that Michael brought up earlier. And now it's all starting to click. I'm sorry that took me so long. So basically, it's it's a rent a it's it's a rental service sort of for for uh, host nodes like a main full nodes. Okay, I get that now. Now my question is. That doesn't solve the throughput problem, does it? Technically, um, because you still have to manage the 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 whole like, uh, you know, I need to get my cats through, and there's too many requests, right? So, how do you solve that? Through that, so there's two sides to that coin. Like, there are two two angles. So, first, yeah, we're not a layer two solution that is trying to solve the scalability problem, but on the other side of that coin. There are things, infrastructurally speaking, that can ease up the UX of apps using Pocket versus using a ROPS connector or using just Infura. So, for example, one of those things could be, since you know for a fact that the node that you're sending your transaction to um, is economically incentivized to have the transaction be put on the blockchain, we are thinking that there will be a, um, a secondary market for a kind of an asynchronous service where I submit my transaction and I get some sort of ticket, like if you will get like for waiting in line, right? You get a ticket and now you know that there's a, there's an, a node that is economically incentivized to put my transaction on the blockchain and I can use my ticket to query the state of that transaction. So that way I can build UX around that. I can help facilitate my users through that asynchronicity of, of blockchain design and product design. Now that said, that's not a, a core part of our value proposition. What we're, uh, what we're proposing is actually highly available nodes that are willing to take on the, the request. Every network's um, limit, uh, limits and, um, and throughput capacity it's not something that we're, because we're not asking those networks to modify their clients. We're just connecting to them. 
Gotcha. And there, and so, okay. So this takes care of a lot of the issues that also people, people typically deal with, like keeping their nodes up to date or whatever. And like, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You can check version for them. You can, yeah. Uh, you can check, you know, Oh, well this fork happened, your node ha- that, that you're subscribed to decided to hop on this side. You don't want to be on that side. It'll automatically put your stuff to the correct, um, you know, type of, so let's just say ETC versus Ethereum split, for example, like, you would actually go, okay, I want Ethereum, but I don't want to jump on ETC, whereas other people might go, oh, I'm going full ETC. Now the DAP developers are driving the conversation a little more, and the demand for the, the marketplace is driven by the developers of decentralized applications rather than the people who are simply hosting the, the nodes themselves, um, which to me is actually extremely interesting because, uh, you know, like BCH and whatnot, um, it's showing that that hash power doesn't necessarily drive the conversation that developers are driving the conversation and that people using the coins are driving the conversation. So the end user, whether they be a developer or somebody just exchanging assets are the ones who are actually driving the value. Um, that, that, that is, uh, that is automatically going to be taken care of through your network. So my DAP doesn't actually have to care. It just goes where the, the, the users are going and, and that's, that makes it, a lot simpler for me as somebody who just wants to develop a DAP and get it out um, to not have to worry about that kind of stuff. Um, cool. Okay. I think I get it now. That, and you that can... guarantee is based on people using pocket. So like the, the ability for someone to say, all right, send me this information. I don't care how I do no discovery to find it is take it up through pocket, but that requires people on pocket running that node infrastructure to be servicing those requests. How do you, how do you get the, the, the level of adoption required to have good service availability um, while you grow? Great question. Um, so we've got an entire uh, plan right now to have as many nodes as possible running pocket uh, by the time we launch the protocol. Um, we have, uh, so if you go on our GitHub, um, you can see that we've built an Ethereum endpoint. So ethereum.pocket.network. Uh, we've just finished our Aeon endpoint. And uh, we've also done an Archain endpoint, for example. And we're working, uh, another company, they, they're, they're actually building out uh, a, a OneChain uh, plugin, right? So what we've done is we've open sourced, open sourced our entire uh, AWS config to make it as easy as possible for people to actually spin up their own infrastructure. And another piece of this is um, through, uh, through running this infrastructure, um, we're actually going to be doing a DAO, a simple DAO uh, with an airdrop on Ethereum. So uh, a good chunk of our tokens are going to be there. And people who are participating in the, uh, as a node in Pocket will have a vote as to what happened. Exactly, like, Think of it just like a dash, dash DAO. Um, we'll have a vote as to what happens with those funds when proposals come in to build you know, some interest in the app or someone wants to be another node or something like that. So, so we, you know, we've already talked to three companies who actually want to participate uh, as a node with Pocket. And um, frankly, our, our stuff is all there for anyone to run. So our goal is to have uh, as many people running this as possible um, to, by, so that by the time the protocol is live, they can just plug in and actually start participating in the network. So we are doing our own KYC in that sense where we're working with companies who we think are reputable, who are strongly, uh, who are talented, technically strong, um, who we think can really can really do this kind of a you know, heavy technical lifting, right? Because this isn't necessarily the easiest thing in the world to do. Yeah. Uh, that being said, uh, we are trying to make it as easy as possible for 
uh, you know, kind of like the one click, hey, I'm going to run my own AWS with my own, you know, uh, uh, endpoint kind of a thing as well. So we, we are trying to make it as easy as possible, but, but yeah. Uh, and if I may expand on what Michael said, Michael covered the pre-bootstrap and the initial launch of the network, but in the future, we're developing a process where the market is going to be able to uh, vote uh, on which networks are accepted and which networks are validated. Because me as a service node, I can go ahead and spin whatever network I want and, and advertise that in the, in the network. And if a client wants to connect, if there are no to be those, those I don't get paid. So there, there will be a whole process to accept that um, network as a, as a new network to support, and that's all going to be community driven. So that 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 uh, leads me to my next question. So it sounds like you have a governance model kind of built into this. It's got an election process. It sounds like a DAO. Um, what is your so that that drives me right to the consensus mechanism. You say your proof of stake, but there's no solid proof of stake that's just like general and public and open at the moment. Um, the ones I've seen that are successful are delegated proof of stake. Is that what you're running? We still um, are experimenting with different knobs, as Michael said, but as a general concept, we are running proof of stake, but the, all the finalized details are not out in the public yet. So we can't like officially comment to that. Because we're looking at different models on, on how to do it. Well, well if you can tell us a little bit more about what models you're looking at and why, and some of the pros and cons you're seeing, because I think our, our developer core would really like to hear what some of the results of your experimentation on that have been. For sure. So there are two, if, when we say proof of stake, um, there are, we're actually talking about two things at the same time. So one thing is what we mentioned before is the blockchain layer. Uh, keeping the blockchain spam free, uh, having transactions being put on the blockchain safely and sec uh, securely. And, um, and uh, the whole economic of that model is basically, I will stake uh, uh, an amount of, um, of POKT and I will actually participate in the consensus of which block gets written to the chain. Um, that's one side of the, of the argument. The other side of the argument is the proof of stake for the validators and the service nodes and the, and the clients. So the clients will also need to stake, but we're basically calling another stake category. Um, when you stake to be a node, that's gonna have its own transaction type that is gonna be node stake. Um, I'm not saying that's gonna be the official name, but just to simplify it. It's gonna be a sort of node stake where I input enough metadata to qualify me as a node. And, the, and then the blockchain layer is going to uh, check that and it's going to vote on whether or not that transaction is valid and you're officially approved as a, as a node. So um, that uh, part of the proof of stake consensus uh, actually is validated by, by our federated node system. So uh, one, to one, for a node to become federated, they will need to become a service node first and work enough to earn a reputation. We are using a reputation system. We're calling it karma for now. Um, and you accrue karma by servicing the network enough. When you reach a certain amount of karma and you, on top of that, increase your stake into the network, you're gonna be able to become a validator. 
there's of, there's of course the possibility that we may uh, uh, end up having a DAO step there so we can actually let the community decide who becomes a validator of, of the network. So that part of the consensus is actually um, driven by, by that process. Gotcha. And, and so to be clear, there are certain vulnerabilities, I'm going to call it, in your model. But the idea is that by exercising the power that having uh, too many validators under your control for whatever reason um, to manipulate transactions would devalue the very token that you're investing in. Um, now, of course, that that itself um, means that your value your value stored in the network has to outweigh the value gained from gaming the network, meaning that if you happen to have a bunch of validators that you own and you are trying to squash a competitor's transactions from getting through, um, you um, you would basically, it, the preferable situation is that the amount of stake required to do that would outweigh, the cost of that would outweigh, you know, squashing the competitor in some way. Is that is that correct? Uh, assumption from what I'm understanding on the economics of this? Yeah, that's one of the key indicators that we're using when, when designing these uh, economic policies because that's what they are. Um, what we're trying to do is nudge the behavior of every actor in the right direction. So we incentivize people to behave as, like, to behave the best as possible or behave good, right? Because sometimes it's not as binary. When you're talking economics, it's not as binary as if you're a good citizen of, of, of the network and, or if you're a bad citizen. Sometimes there's a spectrum um, and uh, we're trying to take all those things into consideration to operate in the least margin of error uh, possible. All right. So uh, when can we expect to test that? We're shooting for a Q4 2019. Okay. But cool. I, as you know, software development, we're the worst, like the human, human beings are the worst at estimating. <laughs> yeah, this, this, this technology is not easy. Uh, setting hard deadlines on making sure it works properly is, is shooting yourself in the foot in a lot of cases. So, but that's, that's nice to know when you can start saying anything. How do people get in touch with you and start interacting with you to help with uh, build this process out? Go to our website. Uh, we've got some uh, open research forums that we put literally all our thoughts in, uh, inspired by Ed Research. Uh, so feel free to check that out. Um, obviously, our GitHub has got a ton of activity and a ton of repos. Um, and uh, you can definitely follow us on Twitter at uh, POKT Network as well. Um, and our Slack, we're pretty active on our Slack page today. I would say those are the primary. I would say Slack and, Slack and our research forums are the two primary, and GitHub, of course, are the two primary ways to get a hold of us. Nice. And as always, uh, is there anything that we should have asked you or you hoped we asked you that we didn't get around to? Uh, you can see a full working version of our of our stack. Uh, we released an app called the NanoQuest, actually, uh, a few months ago. Uh, we built it at East Buenos Aires. Uh, uh, I don't know how long ago that was, but uh, me, Luis, and Babel went over there and, and, and hacked there. And, and we built uh, this fun app. It's like the NanoQuest, and it's like Pokemon Go and geocaching. So you find these augmented reality bananas and they re return to you some ERC-721s for completing the quest. And, uh, it's a fun, silly app, but it kind of shows uh, the power of our technology and we actually open sourced that entire app. So you can actually see as an iOS developer, it, it's fun, create wallet. <laughs>
to create a wallet, right? So we've, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for people to, to build using Pocket. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, guys. I look forward to seeing uh, seeing some dApps built on this. Uh, I can't wait to play with the test network. Sucks it's uh, so far out. I'd like to get my hands on it now, but, you know, that's, that's definitely cool. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. That about wraps it up. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.